Friends, as we gather for the last time in 2017 um, to worship the Lord, let us open God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. The sermon this morning will be from verse 12 to 31, but in order to get the context, I would like to read from from, uh, chapter 40, verse 1, all the way to the end of the chapter. So Isaiah 40. I'll be reading from verse 1, even though the sermon will start really with verse 12. If you're new to our congregation, if you're visiting with us, you may find this passage in the Pew Bibles on uh, page number 600. 600. God's Word is found on Isaiah 40, um, verse 1. As you turn your Bibles there, we are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah, and recently we started a new section in this book of Isaiah. And this morning, we are making our way through this new section of the book. And it's a, it's a very fitted, uh, very appropriate passage, especially as we consider the, the end of the year and as we consider looking into a new year. Here's God's word for us this morning. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward, reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Who did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as a dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. 
Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the, heaven, of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word? Lord, would you speak to our hearts words that enable our souls to see you in your greatness, to see you for who you are, to see your majesty. Father, we pray that you speak to our hearts Speak to the dullness of our hearts. Speak to the distractiveness of our hearts. And enable our eyes and our ears to focus and see. And able to be able to understand who you truly are. We pray this in the name of Christ. We pray that you would accomplish this through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray for the glory of Jesus in our midst. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, friends, the passage we have just read is like one of the high mountains in the book of Isaiah. It's one of the high moments of the book. 
it begins a new section of the book in which Isaiah looks ahead uh, to the future. From Isaiah's perspective, he's looking ahead to a time beyond the exile that Isaiah predicted in chapter 39. As we saw two weeks ago, when we looked at verses 1 through 11 in more detail, God sent his people a message of comfort to assure them that what was going to happen, the discipline that God was going to send to them through the exile, was not a sign of God's lack of love for his people. God's comfort was shown in various ways. But the great manifestation of God's comfort is the promise that God will come to his people. So in chapter 39, God said through Isaiah, Hey, exile is coming. Discipline is coming. Hard times, trouble is coming. But in chapter 40, God initiates a message of comfort so that his people will not assume that just because trouble is coming, just because God's discipline of the exile is coming, that somehow God has forgotten his people. Or that somehow God's love is no longer there. Or somehow God's care is now suspended. And, and God assures his people, initiates this message of comfort. Don't forget, God's comfort is coming. And the greatest way in which his comfort is coming is declared in verse 10. Behold, your God, the Lord God, comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. God's people needed to hear that though the exile is coming, God's comfort is still with them. And the greatest promise is that God himself will come to dwell with his people. This is what we have celebrated at Christmas just a week ago. And notice the detail of how God describes himself when he comes to be with his people. It's amazing the description we see in verse 11. That when God comes, what he will do, not only will he rule when he comes, not only will he bring his reward when he comes, but when he comes to be with his people, we're told in verse 11 that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. It's amazing that God's message of comfort for his people is ultimately seen in this picture. God coming to dwell with his people. And it's as if that news was not good enough. God is also giving a picture how he's coming. He's coming like a shepherd tending his flock. And it's not just a shepherd who leads from a distance. It's not just a shepherd who, who leads from behind and, and, and hits the, the, the sheep. No, it's a shepherd who takes the sheep in his arms. It's a shepherd who, who gathers the lambs. It's a shepherd who, who carries them in his bosom. It's a shepherd who knows the sheep who are with young and carries them gently. God wants to be involved in caring for his people just as a shepherd gathers the lambs in his arms. This message of comfort has been explicit in the first 11 verses of this chapter. But starting with verse 12, there's a change of emphasis. Isaiah anticipates that as, as good as that message of comfort sounds, when the trouble comes, 
when God's people will actually start to be in exile, when the trouble of their lives start to be the experiences of their day-to-day lives, their head knowledge is not going to be enough. They need to be reminded. They need to be confronted by, with, the ante- with the objections that they will face. And in, starting with verse 12, Isaiah anticipates that God's people, even though they just heard the message of comfort, God's people will have two particular traps that they will fall into as the exile will settle in to a people who will be taken out of their land into a Babylonian exile, the pressure they were going to face is to think one of two things, at the very least. That the Babylonian gods were stronger than the God of Israel. After all, why did God allow them to be displaced out of their land? The pressure to conform to the idols of Babylon was going to be great. Another temptation the people of God will face when when the exile will will settle in, they will be tempted to think that God doesn't care anymore. They will be wondering if it's really worth following this God who allows us to go through trials, who allows us to go through suffering. Isaiah anticipates these temptations that God's people will face and offers here two big truths about God to help them with such temptations and these truths to be set before them before, before the suffering comes so they can continue to rely on the Lord. So this morning as we look at this passage, let's look at two big truths about God from this passage. The first truth is that God is beyond any earthly comparison. That God is beyond any earthly comparison. And the second truth that Isaiah gives is that God is beyond any human weakness. God is beyond any human weakness. Let's look at these truths and see how Isaiah unpacks these for us. Look at the first one. God is beyond any earthly comparison. The first part of the passage um, that we are talking about today from verse 12 to verse 26, we see how Isaiah frames uh, this this part of the text by two main questions. I wonder if you picked up on two questions that were repeated in our text. The questions, look at verse 18 and look at verse 25. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? The same question is repeated in verse 25, but this time it's asked by God himself. God says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Lord, the Holy One. Friends, these two questions, the fact that they're repeated twice are like they, they frame this entire, this entire part of this text. God knows that our hearts, in our hearts, we are tempted to compare God with someone else or something else. And our hearts are bent on latching on to some other created thing or some other created being as a solution to our problems or as a solution to our dreams and aspirations. Friends, think about your dreams that you have, your hopes that you have for 2018. What do you latch your hope on to accomplish uh, that goal, that aspiration? One of my aspirations for 2018 is to finish writing my dissertation. It's easy for me to think, if I can just put enough hours 
if I can just focus enough on that, I will get it done. It's easy to compare God in that moment with my ability to put aside time and focus. To whom will you compare God? In this text, Isaiah challenges God's people to examine themselves and see, are they comparing God with someone else? Are they thinking of someone else other than God, deserving their life attention, deserving their adoration, deserving their ultimate pursuit? Is there someone else in your life other than God to whom you are inclined to run for hope, for comfort, for significance, for protection? Some people, when they are distraught or depressed, they run to food to get comfort. You know that comfort? Others run to drinking. Others run to one particular food, chocolate, for comfort. Others run to friends or family. Others run to themselves, and they love having a pity party with themselves for comfort. Some people run to their education. Some people run to their degrees. Some people run to their connections to find hope and certainty. Other people run to health. Other people run to wealth. Other people run to community for help, for comfort and hope. Ask yourself, are there any things, are there any people are there any situations to which you are tempted to run to besides God? Do you run to those things first? As we close a year, 2017, ask yourself, have you compared God with anyone else or anything else this past year? Examining my own heart, I realize I have. I've compared God to people. I've compared God to certain ideal situations. Ask yourself, who are you comparing God to? Well, to set the stage for this comparison, we are tempted to fall into, into, this, into thinking of God less than what He really is. Isaiah presents a number of comparisons, and it's as if he's taking us through a little repertoire, a little catalog of situations. Let's compare God with, with four areas of, of life or existence. As Isaiah looks at this passage, as he, as he um, develops this passage, let's look at, at four subpoints of who, who we are tempted to compare God to. And Isaiah helps us ch- examine and challenges our imagination, challenges our minds. In verses 12 to 14, Isaiah challenges us to see the greatness of God by comparing God to his creation. And look at the, the waters, look at the heavens, look at the dust of the earth, look at the mountains, and look at the hills. To use these natural realities that are impossible for us to contain or to measure or to change. We can't measure. We cannot contain the waters of the oceans. We can't contain or measure the mountains. We can't contain the hills. Imagine the earthquakes when they start moving. Can we stop them? Can we, can we contain them? No, we can't. 
This past year, our, our nation has been hit by a number of natural uh, disasters. Can we, can we put a boundary to those? Listen to how Isaiah paints God. Think about the oceans. What would it take, God, what would it take to contain the oceans? Here's how God paints it. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? All that God needs to contain the waters is a wallow of his hands. Or think about the, the expanse of the heavens. Who has marked them off with a span? Or think about the dust of the earth. Who has measured them? Or think about the mountains. Think about the hills. The mountains in scales. The hills in a balance. The point here is, is God is able to measure those. No one else is. God is able to contain them. No one else is. And then he moves on in, in verse uh, 15 in verse, I'm sorry, in verse 13, he says, Who can measure the Spirit of the Lord? When God created this world, he did not need any counsel from any man or any other created being. In verse 14, it says that God did not need anything to cause him to exist. God did not need anyone to teach him justice. There is no law outside of God to which God submits. There is no other thing that that God takes his cues from in terms of justice or knowledge or understanding. We are all caused by something. We cannot exist by ourselves. We cannot cause ourselves to exist. This universe cannot cause itself to exist. It had to have a first mover. Something had to happen to cause it to happen. But God exists without any prior cause. God is the uncaused mover. In verse 15 through 18, Isaiah changes a canvas from the, from the picture of, of creation. Now he moves on to the picture of nations. In verse 15, Isaiah compares the nations to a drop from a bucket. Have you ever, have you ever carried a bucket full of water? As, as a bucket is filled with water and you move it on from one place to another, uh, oops, a little drop falls off. Do you ever go back to refill that one drop of, of water? No. Why? Because a drop is sort of meaningless. It doesn't make a big difference. The same way now, God says, and Isaiah says, when we compare the nations with God, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Think of that picture. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Friends, if, if you've ever or whenever you dust an area in your home, next time you dust an area, think, think about it this way, that it's just as easy for God to pick up the coastlands of the earth as it is for you to dust an area in your home. That's how great God is. And why is it important for Israel to hear this truth? Because they were going to be in exile by Babylon. They needed to hear that their oppressors were in the hands of God. And it was just as easy for God to remove them as it is for us to remove the dust. In verse 17, all the nations, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing. 
and emptiness. Oh, friends, putting our confidence in nations, even, even our own. Even our own. 2017 has been an interesting year for us, right? We have wondered and we have looked with more caution and with more care what's happening to our own nation and what's happening to our nation in relationship to other nations. We're wondering if we're going to lose the leadership upon the global, upon the global stage of world politics. And we might be fretting and wondering, will America be what it used to be? Friends, I don't know. But here's what I do know from God's Word. Ask yourself, how much confidence have you placed this past year in our nation? Or in any other nations of the earth? How much fear have you allowed your heart to harbor because of other nations? We know that rumors of war are just the signs of the coming end. But to God, all the nations are accounted to Him as less than nothing. In verse 19, Isaiah sets another alternative. After painting the comparison with creation, after painting the comparison with the nations, in verse 19, Isaiah paints a comparison with an idol. What does Isaiah say about idols? Well, look at verse 19. Not an idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. In other words, an idol has its origins in man. An idol cannot exist apart from man creating it. Idols are man-made. Now, we don't, we don't practice uh, worshiping, bowing down to little statues as idols today. We have become more sophisticated than that, right? We may not bow down to statues of wood or, or stone, but friends, we still have idols. We have not moved away from that. We take something from this creation and turn it into an idol. Our jobs, money, relationships. We can attach to create things of value and an attachment and a devotion and a comfort that it should have never been placed upon it. It was never created to have that kind of devotion, to have that kind of source of significance, to be a kind of a source of happiness. We take that which is sometimes good, and yet when we give it an adoration that was never intended for it to have, an adoration that only God deserves, we make it into an idol. The Bible says that covetousness, covetousness is idolatry. So when we are giving into coveting what other people have, we commit idolatry because that covetousness comes from a heart that has attached itself to created things. We, we are eager, we yearn, we crave for other created things, and we desire to place them in the place that God alone deserves to be. Idolatry and idols have their origins in man. Idols exist because we make them. Idols exist because we make them. Idols do not exist apart from man creating them. And in comparison with an idol that has its origins in man, Isaiah says, look at God. He exists without anyone creating him. He exists without anyone giving him counsel. He exists without anyone showing him how to run the world. 
Oh, friends, just think about your life and mine. How often when we don't like things in our lives, we want to suggest God that we know how better to run things. We are constantly in, in danger. We are constantly inclined to tell God, Lord, we know it better. Oh, friends, the point that, God, that Isaiah brings out is that God knows better. He doesn't need anyone to counsel him. To counsel him. He doesn't need anyone to teach him the right path. If the origin of idols is man, notice how God, views, how God views mankind. In verse 21, Isaiah asks us, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Just let that picture sink in next time you think that you want your way. You may want your way, you may have your way, but your way is as significant and as powerful as a way of a grasshopper jumping from one leaf of grass to another. Just let that picture sink, sink in when you are consumed with yourself and your own views of reality. Like a grasshopper. Isaiah wants us to compare the origins of idols and the nature of idols with God. Notice the image Isaiah gives for God's greatness. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. In other words, God, in order for God to stretch out the heavens, is as easy for him as it is for us to stretch the curtains. Friends, if you have curtains in your home, and I don't know how many of you still do, most of us have blinds, but if you have curtains in your home, next time you move them, just think about this. It's as easy for God to stretch out the heavens as it is for you to stretch out your curtain. Let that greatness of God sink in. Isaiah compares God not only to creation, not only to the nations, not only to idols. He compares God to the kings of the earth. Look at verse 23. God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Now again, remember the circumstances of this chapter. Isaiah writes this chapter after telling them the Babylonian captivity is coming. Isaiah writes envisioning that the exile is coming. A time when a foreign king with his great army will exert devastating power and displace Judah out of her land into a foreign land. Such an exile would be a brutal reminder that a foreign king and his kingdom was stronger than Judah. Yet Isaiah wants to tell God's people that God brings princes to nothing. And he makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Think about the presidents of nations. Think about powerful leaders of our past, presidents like Ronald Reagan. Think about presidents like Abraham Lincoln. Think about other presidents of other nations, uh, Winston Churchill, although he's not exactly president, but a world leader. Think about other uh, current presidents that are not good necessarily, or we may not think of them as good, Putin and Russia. Think about King Yong Jun and the threat they seem to, to exert among the nations today. To us, such rulers exert great power, either positively or negatively. 
Now, this verse is not saying that their power is nothing. This verse is not saying that their power is nothing. No, they do have great power and influence. But from God's perspective, on God's scale, their power is as nothing. And they are as grass. All he needs to do is to blow on them, and they wither. Friends, I wonder if you realize that to God, what we might consider to be the greatest, the most strategic, the most powerful solution in this earth is as if nothing. So far in this text, Isaiah has brought down a number of of comparisons and has helped us, tried to help us compare the greatness of God to anything that we might think as great. Creation, the nations, idols, or kings. What are the things you compare God to? Perhaps you compare God to your ambitions and dreams. Friends, if you're not a Christian, ask yourself, why should I consider the truth about God? Why would I care? Why would I want to pay attention to this God? Friends, if you're not a Christian, just take a moment to ponder the audacious claims God makes about himself. That he is self-existent. In other words, that he does not need anything or anybody to cause his existence. Everything about us, everything about our world has, needs to have a prior cause. Not so with God. Ask yourself if there are things or situations that you consider to be more important than God. Do you compare God to an ideal career? Do you compare God to a picture of an ideal spouse? Reflect on this year that just passed. Are there things or people or situations that you have considered as more worthy of your aspiration than God? The second thing that Isaiah helps us to see is that God is not only is beyond any human comparison, but the second thing Isaiah wants us to see is that God is beyond any human weakness. God is beyond any human weakness. Isaiah exposes the second trap that Israel and Judah were, were going to face, not only to compare God to others, but the second trap Israel and Judah were going to face is to think about God as unable to deal with their suffering, as unable to deal with their weakness, especially during times of difficulty. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, why do you speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Again, remember the context. Isaiah envisions the Babylonian uh, captivity. The complaint that God has turned his eyes from them is going to be a real temptation, a real lure for them. That somehow God doesn't care anymore. When times of trials come, this indeed is a path that many people take. If a tragic event takes place, we are so quick to ask, where was God when this happened? We may not be saying the the things that, that Judah said verbally, where my way is hidden from the Lord or my right is disregarded by my, by my God, we may not say that in that way, but in our hearts, our hearts might be secret, secretly harboring thoughts of despair, thoughts of hopelessness, thoughts of, of, of discouragement, that somehow the Lord has turned his face away from us. Like Naomi, when she turned back, to her land and did not want to be encouraged because she thought the Lord 
has disregarded her. Notice how Isaiah addresses this temptation, this lure. He begins by describing who God is. For the second time in this text, Isaiah appeals to that which they have known. But even though they've known this truth with their with a head, their hearts were in danger of secretly dismissing these truths. Why? Because their experience was difficult. And it's always easier for us to rethink God in light of our experience rather than in light of what he reveals to us about him. The medicine Isaiah provides for their hearts that would be lured into discouragement is, first of all, the doctrine of God. The doctrine of God. Look at verse 28. He says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? He assumes they've known these things. He's not bringing to them new information. He's bringing them back to the truth about who God is. It's always easier, dear friends, and it's possible for us to know truth about God and not let that truth affect us. It's possible for us to know the right things about God and yet for the heart to misfire with doubts and unbelief. So Isaiah reminds them of the doctrine of God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? What? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Friends, we may be inclined to consider and conclude there are ways may be forgotten by God. Just remember, it's not that our way is hidden from God, but that our understanding cannot fully grasp what He is doing. He is eternal. His source of, of our, he is a source of our existence, and He never gets tired. His understanding we can never fully grasp. It's not that His way is hidden from us but rather that our, our ability to understand his way is limited. But Isaiah doesn't stop simply at describing who God is or what he is like. In verse 29, Isaiah describes not who God is. In verse 29, Isaiah describes what God does for his people. And listen to verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he, ex- he increases strength. In other words, God doesn't keep the power to himself. And God gives power and strength not to those who help themselves. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who are utterly helpless, who come to the end of themselves and realize that they cannot help themselves. Oh, friends, for us, when we get tired, when we feel like we're out of any human strength, We want to throw in the towel, don't we? We want to stop what we're doing and either go take a break or quit. But to God, our lack of strength, our lack of resources, our lack of power are not an obstacle. God doesn't need our strength for us to accomplish His purposes. God is able and willing to provide the strength we need to accomplish His purposes. Our lack of strength may feel like it's a limitation to us, but it's not a limitation to God. He is a source of power. He is a source of strength, and He wants to give it. He wants to give it. You know to who? He wants to give it to the faint. He wants to give it to the, to the one who has no might. In verse 30, Isaiah speaks about those who feel that their power and strength is without limit. The youth and the young. 
The youth and the young feel that their lives run out forever. Isaiah says, even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But look at the contrast in verse 31. But those who wait for the Lord, they shall renew their strength. In other words, choosing to wait for the Lord is a better deal than waiting to be young. Oh, how many of you this morning, how many among us, look back with sentimentality at your days of young age? You don't need to raise your hand. I see it on the smile of your face. You look back and say, if I could just be young again, if I could have the, if I could have the strength of youth again, if I could have the wisdom I have now and the body I used to have 30 years ago, I'd be so much better off, right? Oh, friends, this verse tells us that it's a better deal to wait on the Lord than to want to be young again. It's a better deal to wait on the Lord and to learn how to do that than to want to be young again. Even youth, even youth grow weary and tired. Even if you could turn back the clock to 30 years ago and have the strength of youth that once you used to have, spiritually, that would be more devastating to you because you would rely on that strength. And what Isaiah is trying to say is don't rely on the strength of youth. Don't, don't wish back for a time when you could rely on more of yourself. Rely on the Lord. That's a better deal. The strength that we get when we rely on the Lord is an, is a not, is an unnatural strength. No, Lord is, notice the images. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Oh, friends, this is not just a movie here. This is, a, this is a picture of an unnatural strength. And the Lord renews that. To who? To who is this strength renewed? Not to the youth. Not to the young men. It is given to those who wait on the Lord. Well, friends, look to God and rely on Him. God is beyond the need for you to be young to give you strength. God doesn't look at your limitation and say, Oh, look at poor you. You're, you're so weak. I can only give you an ounce of strength. Oh, friends, God gives strength to those who look to Him. And He doesn't look at your weaknesses. He doesn't look at your limitations. God is not limited by our weakness. The Lord is able to renew strength. But what it requires for His people is to wait on the Lord. Occasionally I hear people say, even in the life of a church, Oh, the youth and the children are the future of our church. Have you heard people say that? Have you heard that impression? Or perhaps you've harbored that impression in your heart? Well, in my heart, I, I think I know what they're saying, but in my heart, and I'm going to say to you what I've always thought when I heard that phrase, the future of our church is not our youth, nor our children. The future of our church is God. It is not the youth who are a source of strength or energy for a church. It is not the young generation that is a, the source of hope for the future of the church. It's God. God is able to make out of stones children of Abraham. We, we don't need to look just to the young generation to be the source of, 
of, of the future for the church. What we need to look is, is God. Human strength, even of the young generation, will fail. Human strength will eventually run out. But the strength that the Lord is able to give will never run out if we keep waiting on the Lord. Think on how often we would rather rely on ourselves to think of our ways rather than rely on the Lord. Think how often you would rather rely on your plans, your strategy. You think better. You know better what it is. Waiting on the Lord is no easy situation. Remember Abraham? God told him that, he's gonna, that God is going to make out of Abraham a great nation. And Abraham is looking at his weakness. He has not even an heir, not even a child. How is he going to believe the, the, the promise that he's going to have the nations come out of him when he doesn't even have a child? And God allowed Abraham time to test that waiting. And it was a long time, 25 years of waiting. And what does Abraham do? He thinks that in his time of waiting, he can help the Lord and give counsel to the Lord and suggest a better path. So Ishmael is born. And we know where that ended. We know where that, what that produced. Oh, friends, waiting on the Lord does not come naturally to us. It doesn't come naturally to our, to our minds and our hearts because we want to give counsel to the Lord. We want to tell the Lord what is better. We have seen the theme of waiting for the Lord in the, earlier in the book of Isaiah. Five times so far, Isaiah has encouraged God's people to wait. Isaiah 8, 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Can you hope in a God whose face you cannot see right now? Verse 25, chapter 25, verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Verse 20, chapter 26, verse 8. O oh Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desires of our, of our souls. Can you talk like that as we begin 2018? Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Chapter 30, verse 18. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Chapter 33, verse 2. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Finally, now, Isaiah says, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strengths. Friends, think how often it is that we get to the end of our power and strength, and we feel it's not worth trying anymore. We feel discouraged. We feel empty. In such moments, we remember that God is beyond any human weakness. If we feel discouraged or down, it's because our hearts rely on our strength. And when our strength is out, we are discouraged. But when we remember that in our weakness, the Lord's strength doesn't run out. In our weakness, we don't need to be discouraged about the fact that our resources for strength or power are run out. The Lord is there. The Lord replenishes the strength of those who wait on him. To our God, our limitations are not a problem. God gives strength to the weak, but only those who wait for the Lord. To wait for the Lord is not just a matter of time. Waiting on the Lord means relying on the Lord, trusting on the Lord, believing his word, embracing his word with our hearts that God is beyond any earthly comparison and that God is beyond any earthly weakness.
Well, friends, I wonder, I wonder if we realize that waiting on the Lord requires us to trust Him. We can't wait on the Lord if we don't trust Him. We can't wait on the Lord if we belittle Him. We can't wait on the Lord if we have images of other things or people as being greater than the Lord. We will always wait on the things that we most cherish. We will always rely on the things that captivate our imagination the most. We can't wait on the Lord if we belittle Him. One way to grow in your waiting on the Lord is to actually cultivate your knowledge of God. I encourage you, my friend, if you're going to cultivate your, your waiting on the Lord, get serious about reading the Word this year. I encourage you, if you don't have a, a Bible reading plan, uh, that you, don't, you read Scripture regularly, I encourage you to get a Bible reading plan. In our, in our bulletin, there's a blurb, an announcement about a website that we want to make available to you with reading plans so you can choose from, so you can cultivate a regular reading of God's Word. We want to encourage people to, to grow in the knowledge of God so they can wait better on God. Another resource I would encourage you after reading God's Word and, and pouring yourself into reading God's Word, I would encourage you to consider reading a, a book like Knowing God by Jai Packer. It will fatten your soul. It will, it will expand your understanding of who God is. Get together with another believer to read that book together and learn in, in who God is. The more you grow in the knowledge of God, the more you will trust him, the more you will wait on him. Don't be ashamed of your weaknesses and failures. And don't try to fix him on your own strength. When your strength runs out, there is a strength that can be given to us from the Lord. Don't be discouraged by your lack of strength. Don't be hopeless in your weakness. If the Lord gives strength to the weak who wait on him, it means that our weaknesses are a time when God's strength can be displayed. Sometimes the Lord may not take a weakness away. Sometimes the Lord may not take a weakness away to teach us dependency on Him and to give us opportunities to experience His strength in our weakness. The Apostle Paul once asked the Lord, Lord, would you take the thorn out of my flesh? I want to remind you there, the Apostle Paul was used by the Lord to do quite a few miracles in his life. And the Lord has answered quite a few prayers for the Apostle Paul. And yet when the Lord, when, when Paul prayed three times for that flesh, for that thorn to be taken out of the flesh, the Lord's reply was, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, what God claims that his power is made perfect in weakness. The greatest display of that truth is not the Apostle Paul. It's not the people of Israel in the exile. The greatest display of that truth is the cross. Through the greatest suffering, through the greatest pain, through the greatest human injustice, God showed his power to save. Our God, our God, majors, it's a powerful God who, who's able to work through suffering, is able to work through weakness, and is able to show his strength through weakness and through suffering. 
And yet so often, we want to shun away. We want to run away. And we feel so discouraged and despaired. Friends, the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, Paul learned the secret of what God has done in Christ. Friends, God is beyond any human weakness. Two big truths about God from this passage. God is beyond any earthly comparison, and God is beyond any human weakness. In his book entitled Big God, the author Orlando Sayers makes the following observation. Millions of people believe in God according to the censuses, but the God they believe in has only a minimal impact on their lives. They've rarely, if ever, to be found in church. Their values, ambitions, priorities, and dreams show no evidence of being impacted by the Bible. Their lives are virtually indistinguishable from an unbeliever. They're, they believe in God, just not a God who has anything to do with their lives or indeed with the world at large. Isaiah would challenge God's people to have nothing to do with that kind of a God. Isaiah has painted for God's people this picture of, of God being beyond any earthly comparison and God being beyond any human weakness or limitation. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to be captured by the image of your greatness, by your majesty, by your holiness, in a way that all other earthly Images, ideals, hopes, idols. They would perish or vanish in comparison with your greatness. Help us, O oh Lord, to be a people who learn how to trust in you. To be a people who learn how to rely on you, to wait on you, so that as we do so, you may increase and replenish the strength that we need for the life that you have given us. We pray that your glory, your power may be growingly before our eyes so that our hearts may fully rest upon you. In the name of Jesus we pray.